invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, the black pew Bible in the pew in front of you, page 11, Genesis chapter 16. Vance Havner has said or written, the detour is always worse than the main road. The detour is always worse than the main road. We, we, we chuckle because maybe you, like me, have experience in real life through your travels of that being true. But this statement is also true of our spiritual lives. And we'll see that this morning in our passage. We'll remember that Abram, who we already read about here in chapter 16, but in chapter 15, Abram, having received the assurance of God already, he received the assurance of God of the future promises. After he had the establishment of of what uh, we call the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15. After all of that, we would think, we would think that Abram's faith would be emboldened. It, It would be confirmed. It would be resolute. Like, what, what if God came to you and, and confirmed these, these epic promises to you? How much you then live the rest of your life with great faith in those promises? And yet, what we find in the very next chapter is a failing of faith, or what we could call a detour from faith. And this serves to remind us as we just sang, that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. It is when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we look only at our problems, it is then when our decisions become more pragmatic, more than conviction. We see just that as Abram's wife makes a proposal that we just read in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, and I might say Sarah today. I might say Sarah. I might pronounce this three different ways today. We're talking about the same person. I'm just going to get that on the table right now. We're talking about the same person. So I, I don't, I don't, you don't need to remind me that I said it wrong. It's okay. It's all the same person. Trust me. Not, we are talking about two different women in this passage, but this is the same woman. All right. Let's just clarify that right now. Okay. So, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. At this point, they had been in Canaan for 10 years. And Abram was now 85 years old. And the text tells us that Sarai was still barren. No children. We actually saw this at the beginning of, of the time uh, of Moses telling us about Abram and his wife. We saw us all the way in chapter 11, verse 30, where we're introduced to this couple, and it is known at that point that there are no children being born by her. In the culture of the day, barrenness was considered a curse, a divine judgment against the woman. And having children was considered a blessing of God. Oh, how times have changed in our cultures. Surely, though, Sarah would have known the promises of God. 
the promises that, that there would be an heir, there would be an offspring, the promises that God made to Abram. And yet here, knowing those promises, presumably, she was unable to fulfill those promises to herself. So in verse 2, we see that, that Sarah actually acknowledges not only that, that she is without children, but, but God's role in that. Look at verse 2. And, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's, that's a true statement. That, that God was sovereign over her barrenness. That, that God withheld children. And, and we, we can see why in, in a moment. Or we'll talk about why in a moment. The Lord had prevented her. Now, now this is not only her acknowledging God's sovereignty, but there's also um, a sense of blame here. The Lord has done this. The, the, Lord, the Lord isn't letting me have children. What, what next? So, the rest of verse 2, go into my servant. It may be, maybe this is how it's going to happen, Abram. Maybe this is how we'll make the promise fulfilled. That I shall obtain children by her. So, so Sarah has, has a plan here. The plan was trust in herself, not trust in the Lord. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce writes, when we stop trusting God, we tend to blame God and other people as well for our difficulty, which we will see more on the blaming later. But, but due to this complication uh, of the barrenness, she makes a plan, and the plan is for Abram to have, try to have a baby with her Egyptian maidservant. Verse, verse 3, the end of verse 3, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. This may seem wild to us that a woman would do that, that a woman would give her maidservants uh, to her husband in order to have a child or to gain a child or to, her words, obtain children. And yet, in the Near Eastern cultures, the ancient Near Eastern cultures, this was a standard legal custom. This, this would not have been un, out of the ordinary uh, to do. Actually, later in the book of Genesis, we see it again with Jacob. When Jacob has multiple wives and then they have servants that are given to him as well to have children with. But, and this is a, a good principle to live by, just because something is legal and accepted by a society does not mean it is wise, does not mean it is righteous, and does not mean that it is approved by God. Just because our country says that something is legal does not make it righteous. Just because the people around you think something is acceptable, does not make it acceptable before God. In fact, this treatment of the marital union that we're, see, we're seeing here with Abram and his wife is directly against God's design. Directly against God's design. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That, that, that's singular. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. That's one and one. One man, one woman for life. That's God's design. And here, Abram and Sarai are in direct opposition to this command. 
Well, Kent Hughes points out something also ironic about this passage as it relates to what uh, Sarai does. Back in chapter 12, when Abram goes to Egypt, he sojourns in Egypt because of the famine. In Egypt, he writes, trustless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian pharaoh. Now, in Canaan, untrusting Sarai gave Abram over to her Egyptian servants. So in chapter 12, Abram is the one making these unfaithful steps. Now here, Sarah is acting in unfaith. This was the first polygamous relationship in the Bible, and it is, it was an unmitigated, an absolute disaster. We, we, we see more um, attention given to the, 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 the delusion uh, or the disillusion of the marriage union of one man and one wife. And the idea of a polygamous marriages or polyamory where there is no marriage but multiple partners. A complete dismissal of God's design. And what we find in the pages of the Bible from very early on, that anything outside of God's design is a disaster and you're going to see how it becomes more and more of a disaster. So we have three players here in this story. And the first player, of course, is Sarai. She was second-guessing God. Her, her, her scheme here, her plan, was to get what she wanted, however it took to get it. And so she couldn't get what she wanted by her own body, so she uses someone else. In this way, we see that Sarah was concerned about her wants and not God's will, not God's glory. When she says, it may be, it may be, this may be the way in which I what? Not glorify God, the way that I may obtain children. What is, what is her goal? Her goal is to have babies. Now, you might want to say, well, she wants to fulfill the, the promise of God. But the promise of God was to have a biological child with her husband, certainly this could never have been the will of God. Here she demonstrates impatience. She's refusing to wait on God. Now, if you're tracking through this story, you'll recognize it's been 10 years since the first promise of a son. So you might say, well, that's a lot of waiting. Like, do you want to wait 10 years for, for a promise to be fulfilled? Most of us don't want to wait 10 minutes for a promise to be filled. And we're, we're, we're going to con condemn her for not waiting 10 years. But we're not in charge of the waiting period. We're not in charge of the time period. God's in charge of that. The scriptures tell us uh, as a, a day to us is a thousand years to God. And a thousand years is as a day. His, his timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. We need to remind ourselves of these things, that the God's plan is what is the plan. In any sense that we might have to try to hurry up God's timeline is us scheming our way through life. God was not working on her timeline, so she tried to play God and fulfill the promises on her own. One writer says, self-reliance and self-effort take the place of trust in God. And again, so that we're not just beating up on Sarah here, we're guilty of that. We're guilty of getting ahead of God. We're guilty of saying, I want this now. And God's not giving it to me now. So I'm going to do fill in the blank. Another writer says that faith is living without scheming. You want to live by faith? 
It doesn't include scheming. Sarah is, is trying to attempt a shortcut to get what she wants without doing it God's way. This was the temptation in the wilderness for Jesus when Satan comes to him and says, you can have it all. You can have all, all the kingdoms. I'll give them over to you if you just worship me. What is he saying? You can have glory without suffering. That's the temptation. You can get it without going through the struggle. But the reality is, is it's clear. There is no glory without suffering. In Christian, the same is true for you. That there might be a time of suffering that you must go through until God has made the promise fulfilled. Until he fulfills that promise. Like Sarah, we may wonder why God waits so long. We may wonder and we may never know. In fact, the book of Job, we hear that story and there's no sense in which that Job understands what in the world was ever going on with his life. Why in the world did God do that? We have no sense that Job knows that. Now the rest of the Bible tells us what God was doing, but we have no sense that Job actually knew what God was doing. In the case of Sarai and, and Abram, the reason for the waiting in Hebrews chapter 11 was so that they would be as good as dead meaning biologically not able to have children. We're going to see in our text that Abram apparently was still able. So why the wait? The wait was for them to be as good as dead in order that when the biological son actually came, when, when Sarah actually conceived, it would be no doubt that this was a miracle. No doubt that this is the promise of God fulfilled. That's the only way it could have happened. Sarah was a testimony, uh, Sarah had a testimony, uh, a general testimony, an overall testimony of being a, a good woman. But here, in chapter 16 primarily, we see her imperfect faith on display. We see it primarily as it relates to this other woman named Hagar, the second player in the story. Sarah schemed, and this scheme involved another woman and the mistreatment of another woman, a servant, an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Likely, Hagar, an Egyptian servant, was given to Abram and Sarai in Egypt by Pharaoh, back in chapter 12. Uh, of no fault of her own, she is brought into this mess. As a servant, she would have little agency over her life or over her choices, and Sarah here mistreats this woman, and it's inexcusable. There, there's no excuse for what Sarah does to her and her treatment of her. Yet Hagar, we learn, was not quite spotless in this matter either, as we will see. The third player is Abram. Abram is an obvious key player in this, the story, of course. And yet, we also see him as not a completely active player, but passive about his role and his responsibility. In verse 2, after Sarah uh, presents her scheme, we, we read these words, that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And then in chapter, uh, verse 4, it says, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. He listened to her voice and he did what she had planned. Now, this might sound familiar, uh, of a man listening to a, a, a wife to do something that was not right. Back in chapter 3, we remember that Adam and Eve were in the garden. And Satan comes and he tempts Eve. 
And what do we see? We see that Adam listened to his wife. Here, Abram is listening to his wife. In chapter 3, Eve took the fruits. Here in chapter 16, Sarai took Hagar. In chapter 3, Eve gave the fruit to Adam. And here in chapter 16, Sarai gave Hagar to Abram. Instead of listening to God, to what God had already said, this is true for Adam and for Abram, they listened to a foolish plan. Foolish plan presented by their their wives and they they passively went along with it. We see no resistance. When, When Eve gave the fruit to Adam, it says that he took it and he ate it. When Eve gave Hagar, excuse me, when Sarai gave Hagar to, to Abram, we see no resistance. He listened to her and he did what she said. Abram here was not acting in any way, shape, or form as a good husband. He was not leading his wife well at all. He was not leading her in faith. He was appeasing her. He was going along with her. Going along to get along. Now, now some men do that. And sometimes there's a time to do that for non-essential matters. Sure, things that don't actually have conviction related to them. That's fine. Uh, there's fine. It's fine to compromise with your spouse. That's not what we're talking about. But in matters of conscience, in matters of conviction, in matters of righteousness, leadership must be shown. This isn't to absolve Sarah of, of, her, of her sin. But it is to say that, biblically speaking, God holds the husband responsible. Now, that probably sounds like old talk these days, but that's what the Bible tells us. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve do what they do, God comes to the garden. And who is it that he calls for? The man. He called for Adam. He didn't call for Eve. He called for Adam. And why? Because Adam was responsible for his family. It doesn't mean that Eve wasn't responsible. Eve Eve had her consequences doled out to her as well. But ultimately, Adam was responsible for his family. Abram was responsible for his family. And husbands, you are responsible for your family. It is the weight of leadership that we are given by God. It is not to, to act as an authoritarian It's not to rule with an iron fist. Any man who thinks that misreads the Bible entirely. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are to love their wives, not by telling them what to do. What does it say? But by giving themselves as Christ gave himself for the church. It's sacrificial. It's servant leadership. This is the great and high calling of a husband. And we ought not to minimize it. No matter what the toxic masculinity or patriarchy might tell us, we ought not to minimize what the Bible says about husbandry. We ought not to neglect it, but by grace, we ought to live into it and take it very seriously. Well, clearly, as we've looked at the three players, there's much blame to go around. We can say something about Sarah. We can say something about Hagar. We can say something about Abram. But the story continues. And as it continues, we see the the consequences of those choices. Warren Wearsby writes, When you follow the wisdom of the world, you will end up warring like the world. 
The Apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Which means you sow sin, you get what sin gives you. You sow in righteousness, you get what righteousness gives back. Well, we see the the consequences beginning at the end of verse 4. Or let's look at verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, that's when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked at contempt on her mistress. That's on Sarah. Here we're seeing a matter of pride take part, uh, take root in, in, in Hagar's life. As much as barrenness was considered a divine judgment, the opposite is that conception was considered a divine blessing. And the one who had conceived had, had a greater status. So now here, Hagar, who was the servant, had something that the mistress didn't have. Had a capacity that the mistress didn't have. Had a blessing that Sarai did not have. And she looked at her with contempt. That is, she looks down on her for her inability to conceive. There's a sense here where, where her pride has become visible to Sarai. In Proverbs chapter 3, listen to this. It says this, Under three things, the earth quakes. Under four, it cannot bear up. And here they are. A slave when he becomes king. A fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she has displaced her mistress. The earth trembles. And here in Canaan, in chapter 16, the earth was trembling. Hagar, in this sense, is displacing the mistress. Here, Sarai's scheme. The scheme is, take this woman, this surrogate mother, this, 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 this womb that she would, she would take for her own purposes. This scheme was not going so smoothly. The attempt to do life on her own on her own terms, proved to be a catastrophe, right? And we begin to see the conflict as it rears its head in the house of Abram. This is the result of not following God's word. The result of not following God's word is catastrophe. It is confusion. It is chaos. This isn't our only example of it, is it? James chapter 4 tells us, why, is there, why are there wars? Why are there quarrels among you? Is it not your passions in your hearts? Isn't it that you want what you want and you can't get it? So what? So you will fight and you will war and you will even kill in order to get it. Again, Wearsby, when you follow the wisdom of the world, you will end up warring like the world. Well, Sarai reacts to Hagar, as you would expect, as she is looked on with contempt. Look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Uh, Sarai moves here to blame. She doesn't take responsibility for herself. She shifts the blame. It's your fault, Abram. 
This is all your fault. I gave her to you, but, but now, look, now look what happened. You, you, you did this. In, in a sense, she's not entirely wrong, is she? Now, where she's not accepting her own responsibility, it is true that Abram failed her. It is true that he failed not only her, but he failed Hagar, and he failed the Lord. Sarah planned it, yes. She approved it, yes. But Abram did it. For Sarai, though, it was only after the undesirable consequences that she blames Abram. And then at the end of that verse there, we see that she appeals to the Lord for justice. May the Lord judge between us. Well, verse 6 goes on to tell us, that again, the third player, Abram. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Once again, Abram failed Sarah. He failed Hagar as well. He passed the buck. Instead of walking and helping Sarai through her anger and her frustration, he gave over to it. He let her do whatever she wanted to do and abuse Hagar. He avoided his responsibility and instead went for appeasement instead of repentance and reconciliation. Warren Wearsby, the first step towards reconciliation with others is getting right with God. He continues, Sarai blamed Abram and mistreated Hagar. Abram abdicated his spiritual headship and Hagar ran away. None of them were dealing with it. None of them were dealing with their own responsibilities. All of them were shifting the blame. And when we are right with God, we will be right with one another. And the reason that they were not right with one another is because they were not right with God. And this was chaos. And chaos is the result of sin. That's why there's chaos. And all of us can relate with this. All of us can relate with this. All of us can relate with having sinned, with, with our selfishness causing separation, separation with others, separation from those we love, our selfishness and our sin leading to broken relationships and causing harm to the fellowship of God. We all can relate with that. Now, here's the truth. Though we all have sinned, we are more than our sin, aren't we? Thank God that we're more than our sin. Our sin does not define us. It does not determine our identity. The things that we've done wrong does not mean that, 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 that that's all that, that we are. Christ determines our identity. But that doesn't take the, the consequence of the sin away. It does not change the results. And some sinful choices can't be undone. They can't be undone. There are some things that happen that, that we can't undo. And here in chapter 16 is one of them. Sarah scheming acted in unfaith. Abram made a terrible decision and obeyed her. And this was a decision that they cannot undo. The conception has happened. And so we take note that life is choices and choices have consequences. So what? Make right choices. You don't know the consequences of your choices. You can make choices. Yes, you can't determine the consequences. This story is a story of imperfect faith. It's, it's the story of, of the absence of faith. We see it here. There's little to no recognition of faith at all. And yet still, even in this detour from faith, God does not give up 
on Abram, on Sarai, or on Hagar. And the story continues into verses 6 through 7 through 16 as we see God intervene. Look at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. At the end of verse 6, we see that Hagar had fled. Where did she flee? She headed back to Egypt. She was on her way through the wilderness back to Egypt. The angel of the Lord finds her on the way to Shur, which is en route to Egypt. The angel of the Lord here. Um, we might wonder, who is that? Is that an angel? Is that the Lord? Uh, the angel of the Lord is, is, a, is a name, is a, a title or a, a designation that we find throughout the Old Testament. In chapter, uh, in verse 13, Hagar herself refers to this angel as the Lord. And so what we can come to understand is that there's reason to believe that this was another manifestation in the book of Genesis of God. The, the pre-existent Christ came to Hagar. Now, one commentary says, though mistreated by Sarai and unprotected by Abram, Hagar was not forgotten by God. We've said this before, but much of the Old Testament focuses on the, the chosen people of God. And that's true. Uh, it focuses on Israel, much of the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that God only cares about Israel. He, here's a woman that God cares about. This Egyptian named Hagar, and he comes to her. In all the chaos, God had not forgotten about this, this woman. This woman who was abused. This woman who was mistreated. God cared about her too. She might not have been part of the right family. She might not have been in the highest position. But God cared about her too. And we can know that God cares about us. And throughout the Bible, we see that God came. He came to Abram. Excuse me. He came to Adam and Eve after they sinned. They didn't ask for God to come to him. God came to them. And here, God comes to Hagar, and Hagar didn't ask for him to come. And what are we to believe about that other than to say that God comes to us too in grace? That God has come to us in grace. And most clearly, in the grace of the gospel of Jesus. As Jesus has come, not because we asked him to come, but because God in love and in kindness recognized our sin and came to help us, came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that is, save us. Well, after the angel of the Lord appears, he then speaks. And he began with questions, then he moves to a directive. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The answer to Hagar's problem, to her suffering, to her hardship, would not be found from, by running away. That's the message here. God said, you can't run away from the problem. That's not going to fix anything. You can't do that. You're not going to do that. You're going to return to her. And you're going to submit to her. Submit to a woman who had mistreated her. And as the storyline continues to unfold throughout the next chapters in Genesis, we'll find that Sarai mistreats her again. And yet God calls her to go back, to return, to which she did. In verse 15, it seems obvious that she did. In verse chapter 17, uh, we see it again. Clearly she obeyed God. Well, next the Lord gave her a divine revelation. In verse 10, And the angel of the Lord said to her, I surely will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from, uh, for multitude. God promised her 
descendants, not, not, just, not just Ishmael. He, he promised that she would have a multitude, that her descendants would, would, be, would be great. And we, we should note here an interesting um, point is that Hagar is the only matriarch to receive such a promise from God. As you read through the book of Genesis, the promises of God come to the patriarchs, not the matriarchs. And here Hagar, for, for whatever reason, God comes to her and makes her this promise, makes her this assurance. We can know that God cares not just for patriarchs. He cares for matriarchs as well. The Lord continues with the revelation about her offspring in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall, name, you shall, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So here the Lord confirmed her pregnancy and told her what she was going to have. Have a son. And the name would be Ishmael because, it says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. Uh, the, the, the name Ishmael means God hears or God has heard. Uh, the name, the naming of the child would be a, a commemoration of this experience. So whenever Hagar called out for, for Ishmael, whenever she saw his name or, or used his name, it would be a reminder that God came to her, that God heard her in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord continues in verse 12 to describe Ishmael's character and his future. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, this is not a flattering description. A wild donkey man, uh, which means to say that he was wayward and headstrong. He and his descendants would be characterized by perpetual conflict and hostility against his kinsmen. Now, we know that Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. Now, this is not to say or to suggest that every descendant of Ishmael is hostile. That's not, that's not what we're saying. But we can understand this, that from Genesis chapter 16, what we see is the origin of what has, been come, what has come to be known as the Arab-Israeli conflict. A conflict that started here in Genesis and continues today. You don't think the Bible is relevant? The Bible is absolutely relevant. This is the history of one of the greatest conflicts, ongoing conflicts on the planet. And here it is. And this is how it began. It began in chaos. And it continued in chaos. Sarah's scheme did not achieve what she had hoped that it would achieve. But rather, it created more problems. When we do things the way we want them to be done, instead of the way God wants them to be done, problems ensue. Problems that she could not undo. Problems that would persist during her life as well as after her life. What if she could have known, though? What if she could have known the consequences? What if while she was scheming this, someone could have said to her, I don't think this is going to go very well. I think that what's about to happen is going to have long-lasting effects that you don't know and you can't control. What might she have done different? What about Adam and Eve? What if someone came to Eve and said, I don't think you want to do that. that that's, going, that's going to go badly 
for you. What, what about King David before he, he slept with Bathsheba? What if someone were able to say to him, this isn't, this isn't the way. Don't, don't do that. This is going to end badly for you. What about Judas betraying Jesus? And we could maybe think of others as well. But then we even ask ourselves, what about us? Has there ever been a, a time in your life where someone's come to you and say, hey, really, I love you, but this doesn't look good. This is, this is not okay. Will, will, will you listen? <laughs> will, will you hear that? When the word of God speaks to you, will you listen to it? When you read stories like this that, that give us this tremendous example of the result of doing things outside of God's will, will you listen to it? We can make choices, but we can't choose the consequences, so we must act accordingly. Well, to this, Hagar responds in verses 13 and 14. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lehe Roy, which means, which is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar did not argue with the angel of the Lord. Uh, she did not negotiate with the angel of the Lord. She was directed by God, and then she directs her words to God. The only time where someone gives God a name, Hagar does here, El Roy, which means God of seeing, or the God who sees me. What we find in Hagar here is a submission in obedience to the Lord. In this response of God's intervention in, in, in Hagar's naming of God, we see two important truths about God. That God hears and that God sees. That he hears the cries of the afflicted and that he sees or he looks after those in need. David writes in Psalm chapter 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God sees and God hears. And this is not only the God of Hagar, it's not only the God of David, but it's the God of you and me. In fact, the apostle Peter picks up this verse from Psalm chapter 34 in his first epistle. And he encourages the church in the midst of their suffering that God sees them, that God hears them. Now maybe you feel alone. Maybe like Hagar, you, you have felt like you're in the wilderness, so to speak. Maybe sin has been done against you. Or maybe you have done it yourself. And you wonder if God cares. The scriptures affirm to us, no matter if you feel forgotten, mistreated, a failure, or unworthy, that God sees and that God hears. The God who saw Hagar, he also saw Sarai, and he saw Abram, and he wasn't done with them, and he's not done with you either. 
The Gospels tell us this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And are not one of them, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs on, of your head are all numbered? Fear not, are you, you are of more value than sparrows. God sees and God hears. But he doesn't only see and hear, but he also intervenes. God acts. And in grace, God saw the greatest need of mankind. And of his sovereign choice, in his steadfast love, he intervened for us on our behalf by sending Christ to rescue us from the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross. 